when I uh, was over in Washington working with these high school kids, there'd be like three or four go each day that we went out and they'd be part of the team and then the biologists and the captured team and we'd drive around looking for cat tracks and I'd usually have a couple of them in the truck with me and I said the only thing you the only thing you need to know to be a cat hunter is that Willie Nelson has to be playing on the stereo and you gotta have a lot of hot coffee. <laughs> You're listening to Your Wild Place, a podcast from the Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. My name is Jack Peterson, and this is the first episode of Your Wild Place that you'll be hearing my voice on. I'm looking forward to bringing you more stories and characters from the wilderness in the future. This time, the Friends of Scotchman Peaks talk with Don Clark. Don's a lifelong hunter and outdoor enthusiast. He's been living in western Montana since the 1960s and has watched the political and cultural tides ebb and flow around conservation and wilderness ideas. Now retired, he was an educator for 30 years. Here's Don Clark. Well, I grew up on a farm like you did in South Dakota. Uh, We had cattle and sheep, uh, raised crops, grain crops, uh, cut hay, um, went to a uh, Catholic high school in uh, North Dakota, mm-hmm. St. Mary's, New England, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. So it was a boarding, boarding school. And then uh, when I graduated, I had a, a coach who'd been at Carroll College. And I really liked this coach. And so I asked him about this school, and, and it was a Catholic school, and so... I applied and, and went to Carroll in Helena. That's how I got in Montana. Hmm. And then one of the young ladies that I knew, her father was an elk hunter, and I started hunting elk with him. And and uh, and just uh, we kind of parted company after a while. And when I graduated, I came up here and been here ever since. Uh, it uh, it's changed a lot. When, when I came to Louis, Montana, uh, everybody was a Democrat, and every representative that they sent to Helena was a Democrat, and it seemed that would never change. And the mill had 1,700 workers, and they all voted Democrat. And everybody made their money in Libby, Montana, with few exceptions, in the logging industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, the high school is the Libby Loggers. Yeah. Everything is was logging. We had Logger Days, which was the biggest uh, festival of the year in Libby. I mean, it was big. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, Historically, the railroad companies, when they won, and under Abraham Lincoln to start with, after Lewis and Clark expedition and so on, they wanted settlement in the West. And so they gave the railroads huge land grants, sometimes a mile wide and 50 miles long, 
and he'd alternate it on one side of the tracks and then the other side of the tracks. And so, and it worked. They built railroads. People started getting on them and going west and settling all over. And it actually settled the whole country pretty darn rapidly. Mm-hmm. But then the, uh, the lumber companies then bought out the railroads. And that's how we got these huge, huge uh, companies that are logging companies. Locally, um, the uh, John J. Neils, John Neils, and their family bought huge chunks right around Libby, and they set up the first mill. And they were, um, they they did a sustained logging practice. They only took so much each year, and they knew how much land they had. And they figured by the time we cut all of this, the first part we cut is going to be up again and we can just continue logging it like this forever. Mm -hmm. And they would have. But eventually they got old and so on and they sold to St. Regis Company. And St. Regis was a big company here for quite a while. And they were pretty good. I mean, they, they had good logging practices. Well, then after a long time they sold to Plum Creek. And then Plum Creek kind of liquidated lumber and then they sold the warehouses and they continued liquidating and then they sold now to Green Diamond and Green Diamond is just one that just sold 47 sections over here between here and Kalispell to some private person. The other thing that happened during this whole time mm-hmm. is that with the downsizing and logging uh, industry and closing of the mill a lot of loggers had to leave. Mm-hmm. They went to find jobs. I mean, that's what they did, and so they went to look for work. Yeah. Uh, when I came here, if you were a pro wilderness person, you better kind of keep it quiet. Right. Because the Big W was not a favorite thing around town, and all the loggers figured if it was wilderness, you couldn't cut it, and we're not doing it, and you're not going to make us, and it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And they were pretty darn serious about that. Mm-hmm. After the mill closed, and a lot of those people left, and a bunch more of the real radicals died, um, the concept of wilderness became a little bit more favorable. Mm -hmm. And statewide and nationally, they passed the Wilderness Act and set up some wilderness, the cabinets being one of those. And... um, then when you have something like uh, an attempt uh, to make the Scotchman's Peak Wilderness, it, it wasn't as um, contentious mm-hmm. as it used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Brown, a biologist who's been here for the fishing game for 30 years, he, uh, he kind of picked up this deal and he's, he's a real easy going medium sort of guy and he could talk to a lot of these people without them getting too angry i mean he had an ability not to butt heads but just kind of talk around things and uh he he kind of got them to compromise a little bit on some things mm. we uh we weren't successful 
at, at getting any new wildernesses, but at least we could talk about it without anybody threatening anybody. <laughs> yeah, that's a good step. <laughs> well, when you're when you live through the other part, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. I really uh, started going into cabinets to hunt goats after we got here, and um, didn't have any gear of any kind. I mean, I'm a farm kid, crying out loud. <laughs> we didn't have sleeping bags and flashlights for the wilderness. <laughs> anyway, uh, I wasn't, uh, didn't really know much about wilderness at all. I was in, I was in Helena, Carroll, when the wilderness bill was passed in 64. And I kind of got to know a couple of the key congressmen that were responsible for part of that. Hmm. But I wasn't part of the process at all. But as I uh, spent more time here hiking and and going into the wilderness and getting better equipment so I could maybe even stay in overnight without freezing to death, uh, got to appreciate it. And uh, my wife got so she didn't appreciate it as much. <laughs> We were up camping when she got her goat, and it snowed like crazy one night in September. And I had a piece of black plastic just in case it rained or snowed, which Mm -hmm. I threw over the top of us. And about every hour or so, you'd have to beat the the plastic to get the snow off because it started pressing down on you. And when it got daylight and everything was covered up, we headed for home. And uh, (laughs) anyway, the the change of, of all these logging companies and liquidating it and now selling real estate makes it, makes wilderness even more important. Mm. Uh, but it, it's always going to be under siege and it's going to be under siege more as we need more oil and we need more of this and we need more trees and so on. A lot of the wilderness we don't have a lot of, you know, real good timber in, which is a good thing. And that's one of the things about Scotsman's. Right. The Scotsman's had a lot of really good timber. It had been eroded and cut a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Wilderness gets more and more important. There's more and more people. God isn't making any more land. We've got a limited supply. And mm-hmm. the more we preserve the better it is. Anyway, I've rambled on. <laughs> you asked me some questions. I was particularly interested in how you got into hunting, and it sounds like part of that was moving to Montana and then coming to the area. And this, So did you basically learn when you got here and kind of exper- experientially? My father hunted okay. on the farm in South Dakota. Cool. So we grew up uh, hunting deer and antelope, okay. which is what we had in the area. Mm-hmm. And... I never bird hunted much, uh, but we, I had a kind of a little bit of hunting background, and when I came to Montana, I thought, I want to kill an elk. Yeah. And that took a while, especially in Libby. They're, uh, they got big ears, they got a long nose, they got wonderful eyes, and they use them all extremely well. Mm-hmm. And if there isn't snow and it's dry, it was quite an eye-opener. I mean, when you're on the farm, you can see for 2,000 miles out there. Mm -hmm. But there aren't any trees, not many. And, I mean, you can see a long ways and it's open. Mm 
And so, you know, you might think you're kind of good because you can go out and shoot a deer with a <laughs> rifle at 200 yards. Right. Well, here, you can't see 200 yards usually. Yeah. So it's, uh, it was, it was a uh, slow, slow success process at first. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, and then you can either think, well, I'm never going to get one, so I quit. Yeah. Or you get tenacious and you figure, well, get better binoculars, slow down, mm-hmm. look at everything, you yeah. know, and then after your first four or five, you figure, well, maybe it's not an accident anymore. Maybe I'm proven. <laughs> but uh, yeah. well, I, I grew up hunting on the farm. And I think that it's probably an inherent genetic characteristic a little bit. Mm. Um, You have an inclination towards certain things in your life. Mm -hmm. And I kind of got into enjoying guns and shooting. And then you buy a certain gun for this hunt or that hunt. Some of them are for smaller animals, some of them are for bigger animals, and so on. Uh, You work so hard to try to get close to a nice buck or whatever you're after. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it looks like I've got a lot of elk here, and I do. And some people kind of look at me and, well, you always get your out. I look at it this way. I've got six weeks, five or six weeks to hunt. And if I work very, very hard, even with the very best equipment, I may get one opportunity a year to kill a bull elk. And I think I'm probably better than some because I worked at it for 50 years. Mm. But when I get that one chance, I want to get that open eating. I I started out, I wanted the horns. Now I like the meat and I've got a cow permit this year. I don't have to kill a bull with big horns. I want hamburger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's extremely exciting when you go for weeks and weeks and you haven't seen one and you finally sneak up on one and there's one and you got them in the binocular and you, think, <gasps> and you see hair or mm-hmm. a leg or something and you think, there's one. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, a competition thing really and when you do anything competitively for a long, long time and then you finally reach success, it's extremely exciting. But, uh, mm. yeah, it, it's tough, especially for kids. Uh, <clears throat> I've got a daughter that doesn't hunt at all. She went through hunter education. I said, I want you to shoot an antelope and go hunting with us and so on. And if you don't like it, you don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. If she didn't like it, she's not doing it. <laughs> 
And my son, on the other hand, he can't get enough of it. Oh. So it just, you know, depends on the individual. It isn't mm-hmm. for everybody. I mean, I think there's some certain things that people should teach their kids. One of them is know how to swim. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know when you're going to run off the road and end up in the water. And if you do, why it's nice to be able to swim. I don't care if you like to swim. It's just nice to know. <laughs> I feel the same way about guns. Huh. It's nice to know what they do. and Yeah. I, uh, pulling the trigger and killing something, I, I never want an animal to suffer. If I make a poor hit and I wound something, I feel it really, really badly. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but very rarely. Mm-hmm. I uh, I love to kill elk, but I don't want one to suffer or be injured. I want them. I want them to just be out there having a good time one minute, and the next they're on the platter. Yeah. Uh, Don's hunting experience isn't limited to elk and sheep. He spent decades going after big cats. We're talking about the wild and elusive cats that live in the mountains of Idaho and Montana. Mountain lions, bobcats, the Canadian lynx. All of these big cats are native to the Rockies. The Canadian lynx cannot be hunted as it is an endangered species, but Montanans with tags and permits can hunt mountain lions and bobcats. He no longer applies for a permit for any big cats for himself, but he continues to pass on his knowledge and guide the next generation of cat hunters every season. The last line I shot was in 1996. I haven't shot a line myself for a long time. I, I kind of specialize in 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kids if they get a permit. I've never killed a line. Some of them, some of them never hunted before. We had a, a banker's daughter here years ago, and she took care of one of my friend's hounds when he was gone. She was an eighth grader, and. Uh, she said, well, could I go with you sometime and see a lion? He said, well, sure. I said, can I get a tag? Yeah. So we take we took this girl. And, uh, you know, 12-year-old girl, 13-year-old girl going out with a couple of old guys, you know, you mm-hmm. wonder what the heck's going on. <laughs> but uh, found, a, found a nice cat the first day, and, and uh, I remember she was so nervous. She never killed anything. So... She, uh, she said, well, I'm, I'm cross-section moving around. I'm, I'm nervous. I'm just settle down, wait. You know, we talked to her. Got her a good dead rest, and she took this cat. And she went home. She she had a rug made. She redecorated her whole room. She had a picture of her and the cat. She put a picture <laughs> in the paper. Uh, I don't know where she is now or what she's doing, but they moved away. But uh, she was so excited. She had a really, really good time, and and I, huh. I like taking out that kind of a person, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. it's uh, enjoyable for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. I had a thirteen-year-old boy last year, took one right up Pipe Creek, about five miles from the house here last year. It was his first, first experience with dogs and lions and stuff. Mm-hmm. Their cats are impressive. They are impressive. They're uh, they're stealthy and they're they're beautiful and they're powerful and uh, it doesn't seem like they should climb trees because a dog barks at them, but they do usually, mm. not always, but usually. 
Don had countless anecdotes about hunting, as you might expect from someone who's pursued that passion for more than half a century. But he stressed again and again that that passion cannot be unchecked. Like all natural resources, wild game is precious and has to be managed with respect. Here he relates an effort he and others in his community undertook to establish a balance so that big cats would continue to thrive for decades to come in western Montana. The process wasn't easy. There were opponents, and ultimately, it took years of effort. It used to be the season lasted two or three days, and it was the quota was completely filled, and sometimes they go over the quota 100%. And now you can take somebody, and they can look at four or five cats, and we can talk about them and say, well, this one's a female or it's a male, and do you want this one or do you want that one? Or if we can't see it right, we'll trade again and, and look at it. Um, and they get the whole experience of dogs and how to train dogs and what dogs do and see cats and so on. Uh, it isn't like there's one and you kill the first one and it's a kitten mm. uh, or something. I, right. This system we finally have now, and it's only in our region, region one, the rest of the state doesn't have it. Huh. But we pushed for it hard enough that we finally got it. Wow. And the only ones who are really highly against it are the outfitters. They're not making money. Oh. Now they can still they can still send the information to everybody that gets a tag, but once you get the permit system, that means that only 10% of non-residents can buy a tag. So if you have 10 cats to harvest in an area, one of them will go to a non-resident. And it, it basically cut them out of the money. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's like any other thing. If you're, if you're a logger and somebody wants wilderness and you think you're not going to be able to cut trees and make money, you don't like it. Right. It's the same principle. Oh, yeah. Money's basically all evil. Yeah. Or a lot of it. Outfitters. They're like other things. There's good ones and there's some that aren't so good. Right. Well, when you're outfitting, you're basically hunting for money. And many times when you hunt for money, it changes your ethics. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're the outfitter and you've got a person out there doesn't matter what animal he's after, if it's worth $10,000, if he shoots it, and nothing if he doesn't, or she, you want him to get it, and get it as quick as you can, so you can go out with another guy and get another 10000 And yeah. that happened with, um, with mountain lions here. Uh, you know, the price started at 1500 and then it went to 5000 and so on. And, one, a friend of mine in uh, British Columbia charges thirteen five now for one mountain lion hunt. But he's got really big cats. And rich guys go there and they'll pay it. Mm -hmm. But he <clears throat> has such a big area, he's kind of like sustainable logging here with the Jane Eels family. He only kills great big toms and only a certain number each year. And he controlled it. Well, here it got out of control. There was no limit on non-resident hunting. And literally hundreds of people show up here December 1st to hunt lions. Mm -hmm. Anybody could buy a tag. 
And it was even in Outdoor Life in some of the magazines. Go to Libby, Montana, Lincoln County. Wow. Yeah. We have a good habitat here for mountain lions. And there'd be 150 non-resident vehicles down at the motel on opening day. It was crazy. And the season had lasted like two or three days and the quota would be full. And so a bunch of us that, that like cats, yeah. uh, we started going to Helena to fish and game meetings. It took us 15 years. But we finally convinced a group of commissioners to um, put them on a limited entry permit system. And what this permit does, it controls how many are killed. We, yeah. we, we set a quota, yeah. and only that many permits go out, and then only they can, everybody can chase them and look at them and see them, mm-hmm. but only they have the right to shoot one. Yeah, totally. And so then our overall numbers are always protected. Yeah instead of being wiped out like they were. Don Clark spent 30 years as a school teacher. In this role, he was committed to teaching students and their parents about their wild backyard, about what it means to be a hunter and steward of our local lands. Don has also spent a lot of time actually getting kids outside on hunting trips. He spoke fondly of several trips, guiding his friends' sons and daughters into the woods for their first ever hunting experience. He even teamed up with a wildlife biologist to take kids on a hunting trip that was very different from anything he'd done before. I worked with a uh, biologist over in Washington for a couple of years, a couple of winters after I retired, chasing cats and doing a study and tagging them and stuff and collaring them. They were actually the first GPS collars ever put on lions because they were they were still miniaturizing the technology. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, I don't know, we tagged 20, we collared 25 cats over there with GPS collars on at uh, wow. <clears throat> a little town there. I knew the superintendent. And uh, it was kind of fun because then I'd go back in the spring when there was no snow and, and we'd change out collars. And so I just, I had, mm. I had three young, really good dogs and I'd just say, come on, and they'd just go with us. I didn't have my leashes or anything. And then we used telemetry, didn't have GPS, and we just did that, did that, did that. And then when you get close, they'd pick up the scent and they'd go tree them, and then we'd dart them and drop them out and change the collars. And, and we, had, uh, mm. we had some advanced practice uh, juniors and seniors going with us. And they actually even started doing some DNA work in the high school which is pretty rare. Wow. Uh, it was called Project Cat huh. uh, at Clee Elm, Washington. Huh. And the fishing game was over there was involved with the school district. And, and uh, I don't know. But one of these girls, I, I even wrote to her for a few years after huh. she graduated. She came along one time. We went out to look for tracks. And then if I found one, why I'd call this biologist on the phone and say, bring your captured kit and get over here. But uh, it was it was a different experience for me. Uh, I'd never hunted for a study before, mm. and uh, we'd collar these cats. And then uh, King TV out of Seattle came over and 
did a little documentary for the evening news one time and we caught a female and a kitten that day and we had these high school kids along and this biologist was scared. <laughs> really? Yes. For the like danger for the kids or like what? No. Oh. No danger for the kids. He was afraid of kids, Connie. He'd never been around high school kids in his life. <laughs> And that was a whole new angle. <laughs> and when you got King TV and photographers mm. and stuff there, yeah, we're darting cats, and then we're trying to let them out of the trees without hurting them. And he said, "What if something goes wrong?" Mm. I said, "Well, we got to see that it doesn't." <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, that that was kind of fun because he was a he was a one of the top cat guys in the country, mm-hmm. but he was a biologist, and there's a difference between mm-hmm. a biologist and what they know about cats and the way they study cats, and what a hunter does. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. we both learned a little from each other. <laughs> it, was, it was good good relationship. Had a good guy. Yeah. He was, uh, he was nice. Yeah. Don's message comes back to learning and teaching. We all have something we can learn from other people and experience we can share. For this former teacher, the wilderness can be a classroom. And in the process of, of 30 years in education, I had a lot of students. And when, uh, when the hunting season started, I'd take a couple mounts in and put them in my room. And I'd take one bulletin board and I'd put up sheep, goat, and moose for September. Mm. And we'd talk hunting. Mm. And then uh, I even took this bull in a couple times and hung it up in my classroom. Cool. And uh, parents Mm. would come in for the, they they had a day when the parents would come in to meet the teacher and go through all the classes and so on. And I'd have the book. But uh, they loved it. Anyway, inadvertently and somewhat unintentionally, uh, a lot of those young kids and everybody hunted here pretty much. I mean, when hunting season come the, the first week, there are a lot of people gone and yeah. their kids. I mean, you're writing out slips, this is what we're going to do and so on, and, and everybody's gone. But uh, they're all 40, 50, and 60 years old now. And quite a few of them are pro wilderness. Yeah. And some of them are hunting sheep this year in the cabinets. Uh, and I keep track of them and we email and they send me pictures. What do you think of this one? And so on. And I write back. <laughs> Cute. But uh, I guess some of those attitudes came through. And I, I look at that as, as a good thing. Mm. Uh, and. Uh, we had one big dinner over here years ago, and a lot of these young guys, you know, in their 20s and 30s came to this dinner. And they were there because they hunt wilderness. Yeah. And they they appreciate wilderness. They're not probably going out in, a lot of these young guys aren't going out in 
rooting for new wilderness everywhere in the country or reading books on wilderness, but they appreciate the ruggedness and the solitude mm. and the fact that all of these animals and birds and things are there. Mm. The, the hunters, the antelope were almost all dead. The buffalo were almost all dead. There weren't any deer around. When they started ranching, they decided to kill all the wolves. And they finally did. They killed them all. How they did it, I don't know, because they're pretty wary creatures. But they finally killed them all in Montana. It was hunters who slowed things down and said, look, you got to mm-hmm. stop. we got to preserve. Mm-hmm. And, and put in money and got legislatures to start... Uh, protecting some of these things until the numbers come back up. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for it's hard for people mm-hmm. who don't like hunting to understand right. that we go out and harvest something, they think that's wrong. But if you're a serious hunter, you don't ever want to overkill the, right. the population. You want them right. to be out there. And right. wilderness is one of those places yeah. that they're they're first you have to walk in. And that's a lot of work, as you found out this summer. <laughs> I mean, if you go in six miles to Granite Lake or Cedar Lake or somewhere, you've earned the chance to see that site. Mm-hmm. And I, I've been in Lee Lake drainage there, way up on the side of the mountain and near winter, and heard rocks come crashing down. And it's so vast, you can't even tell where it is. Mm-hmm. You can't even see it until we splash in the lake, and then you get an idea where it is. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, if you, if you exclude hunters, you're missing one big group of supporters mm-hmm. who can help your cause. That's Don Clark. I'm Jack Peterson. Thanks for listening to Your Wild Place, presented by Friends of Scotchman Peaks Wilderness. For more information about the Friends, visit scotchmanpeaks.org. The theme music for this program was written and performed by Ben Olson and Katie Archer. We'll be back next month with more from the wilderness. Don't miss an episode by subscribing to Your Wild Place wherever you listen to podcasts.